hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I am streaming live from the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy Studio today. On our midweek podcast today is Wednesday, and we stream our midweek podcast any time during the middle of the week, and it can be a Wednesday or a Thursday, depending on my schedule and my guest schedule. So speaking of guests... I'm super excited to have Scott on today. He is going to tell us a story about his daughter, Grace, who was actually killed in a hospital because of COVID protocols. Yes, you heard that right. She was ki- A hospital killed her because of the way that um, the government policies are on COVID. And she's a, she was a Down syndrome girl. And I'm super anxious and excited to hear about this story. I um, told Scott and our producer before the show that I'm going to do my best to try to keep my emotions out of it, whether that be sadness or whether that be anger. So, um, but I apologize in advance if I do get my emotions involved. Um, You guys know how I'm passionate about subjects and sometimes I get emotional. So um, without further ado, um, Scott, uh, welcome to our show. Oh boy, Sean, thanks for having me. Very nice introduction. I appreciate it. Yeah. So go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit. Sure. Uh, my name is Scott Shira. I am Grace's dad. Uh, Grace was our 19-year-old angel. She she had Down syndrome. She was on the very high-functioning end of Down syndrome. Uh, just to give you an example or two, uh, my wife, who is gifted in teaching, taught Grace how to read and write. Uh, I am gifted in goofing off, so I taught her how to drive without a license. Wow. And uh, she did quite well with that. There's, in fact, a picture of her driving on, uh, on our website. Uh, she, uh, she played violin. Uh, she rode horse. She did everything. Uh, there was nothing that we didn't do with her. She, she, made, life, uh, she made life worth living. Um, we, once Grace was born, we just circled everything that we did around her, and it was just uh, it was an absolute blast and a joy. Uh, God loaned her to us for 19 years, and, and uh, we had a lot of fun during the 19 years. I, I miss her terribly. Yeah, well, there there's some pictures of, of your wonderful daughter, Grace. Oh, and, boy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm trying not to get emotional. So um, tell us a little bit about the, the story, including the timeline of, of what happened with Grace. So, Grace, you know, you had in the introduction, you said that Grace died of COVID protocol. And I, I, uh, I want to, when, you, when I get into this, you're going to see it isn't the protocol that everybody hears. So everybody hears about remdesivir and ventilators. That isn't what happened with Grace. And I believe that once people get wise, and they have been getting wise to remdesivir and ventilators, they have to use another method. And that's what they did on Grace because there's a lot bigger agenda going on. And so this story has nothing to do with COVID. Grace did not die of COVID. Uh, she died. Um, well, we'll talk about that one at the end when we talk about why, because then that's my speculation. And I've done about 500 hours of research to connect the dots. And I, I think I've got the smoking gun, but you can decide after you hear the story. So how it started was Grace had a sniffle around September 28th and we were prepared with the frontline doctor's protocol at home and so we really didn't think anything of it you know we we just looked at at that point in time where COVID was any sniffle we're going to treat as COVID 
So before that, Grace was on uh, vitamin D, C, zinc, all the, the cocktail of vitamins as a, as a preparation. But then we had all the frontline doctors things. So as soon as she got the sniffle, we got her on ivermectin. And um, ultimately, on October 6th, she couldn't maintain her oxygen above 90. And that motivated us to take her to the emergency room. What we found out after I went into the hospital myself three days after Grace died with symptoms similar but substantially worse. So in my research to figure out, well, what's the reason? Why did Grace and I get picked out of the population to end up in the hospital even though we were prepared? And what I found out, you'll see the link on Grace's website um, in the resource tab. Dr. Chetty is a South African doctor and He's treated about 8,000 people, and through through his own scientific method of research, he concluded that there's a small portion of the population who have a propensity to clot and, and, and have inflammation. And I knew that about me, uh, both of those things before COVID. And so Grace would have inherited those from me. My wife got COVID at the same time and her symptoms were really bad, but she never had an oxygen problem. And so obviously she didn't get the same genetics as I passed on to Grace. Uh, so when we were, we were in the emergency room, the physician suggested that we check Grace into the hospital. And at that time, if I would have known then what I know today, of course, we wouldn't have checked her in. We still, still would have went to the emergency room, but we would have went home with oxygen and a steroid prescription and Grace would be alive today. I wasn't aware of the fact that you could get a prescription for oxygen. In fact, now I'm even more aware of it. You can get oxygen ahead of time at home. You can buy an oxygen generator online and be prepared at that level if you want to be. But regardless, you don't have to go to the hospital for oxygen. You just need to get a prescription for it. Um, but that's one reason we're telling the story. I want people to know, you know, Grace's death, we don't want to be in vain. So we want people to know the details of the story so that you can be prepared, not just with the details, but when you hear this, I want you to be prepared that there's a different paradigm relative to hospital systems. Not all of them, but most of them have bought into a government agenda. And you need to know this ahead of time. We fell trapped to the white coat and you know, ultimately by falling trapped to the white coat, that, that's why Grace died. So October 6th, uh, after they said we went to admit Grace to the hospital, I said, well, I'll be staying with her. And uh, so then they said, well, you can't. I said, well, what's the reason? They said, we don't allow visitors on the COVID floor. And so then I said, well, I'll be taking Grace home. And then uh, roughly two hours later, the head nurse came back with a decision and said, well, we talked about it and decided you can stay as long as you don't leave the room. So that, that set up the stay in the hospital. We were in the emergency room then for about 10 hours and we got into a COVID room at about midnight on October 7th. Sean, by the way, feel free to ask questions as we go instead of waiting. I'm, I'm, uh, I've done enough of these interviews. I'm very comfortable with live yeah, questions. That. I, I've got a lot of questions going on in my head, but you're doing a great job, Scott. So keep telling the story. All right. So, um, October 7th, you know, I just thought Grace and I are going to have a little vacation. So, I mean, we're just going to goof off for three, four days in the hospital and she's coming home. I mean, that's how naive it was at that point. And 
It's just because she didn't really have any bad symptoms. She was a little lethargic from not having high oxygen. But, you know, once we were in the emergency room, she was on the cannula. I mean, we were we watched a movie in the emergency room. So, I mean, I just expected it to be a short stay and we bounce out of there. Well, so October 7th hit that mark. I mean, that's the way it was. It was just a fun day with Grace and I. And then the first significant event happened on October 8th. A doctor came in that morning at eight o'clock and said, you're going to have to put your daughter on a ventilator in the next two hours. And I said, what is that based on? And he said, well, we we did a blood gas draw last night. I said, what time? He said, 1130. And a blood gas draw is a specific draw they do a, on a certain vein so that they can do what uh, blood chemistry that measures some very specific markers, which it, it's a fine draw to do. And, and when you chart the markers, you can see, see progress. But Ultimately, I, I told him, you know, the three hours before you took that draw, uh, myself and two of the nurses were working very tough with Grace uh, with her oxygen because the hospital, once she got into a room, they went from a regular cannula to a high flow cannula, which, you know, that drove Grace, you know, she just didn't like it. Nobody would because it's shooting oxygen up your nose at 40 miles an hour. So then we worked with uh, to get her on a BiPAP. And in my perspective at that time is oxygen is key. After the fact, I learned through our research after Grace died that she probably never needed to even be on a cannula because she, she had a CPAP mask at home. I had her CPAP machine in the hospital. We could have just had her on that and she would have been fine. Um, but ultimately, we worked to get her on a BiPAP to fit her face right. And, and so once that was done... Uh, her blood pressure got up to 235 over 135 and her heart rate at 150 beats per minute during that window. So I told the doctor based on that, I don't think your blood gas number is accurate because you took it at the statistically worst time. So I asked to, to have a new blood gas drawn and they did and Grace was fine. So we dodged the ventilator bullet at that point. Uh, at that I got educated on ventilators during that time, and I want to just take some time on that topic because there's also a, a belief people have that ventilators are good, and that is because at the beginning of COVID, and by the way, there's times where ventilators are necessary, but not with COVID. At the beginning of COVID, we were all told we're short of ventilators. We got to have the, the entire country start manufacturing ventilators, so we have this perception that ventilators are good, and, and they are not. The doctor, in a in a rare uh, time of honesty, I asked him, "What's the prognosis if Grace goes on a ventilator?" And he said, "There's only a twenty percent chance she'll walk out of the hospital." The attending nurse started crying, and so you know, I heard I found out why her daughter's name was Grace, and she knew if I made that decision, Grace was going to die. The statistics are substantially worse. You know, the doctor was on the right track, but it's only a fifteen percent chance versus twenty you're going to walk out alive. And most of the people who walk out alive after being on a ventilator with COVID die within the first year. So it is bad news to get on a ventilator. And there's a push for a ventilator. I'm going to just spend a little bit more time on a ventilator. Yes, please. It's that important. There's, they pushed us four more times to give them a pre-authorization for a ventilator. And they couched it this way. They said these type of things happen in the middle of the night when we can't get a hold of the family. So they wanted, my wife had the medical power of attorney. They wanted us to make this decision. So just in case Grace needed a ventilator, they could do it anytime. Well, we rejected that 
um, that call four different times. Grace never came close to needing a ventilator. The last time we rejected, I rejected it, I believe, is when they they decided they needed to take her out a different way. And again, that's speculation, but you decide after hearing the story. The um, can I can I um, make a few comments, Scott, and maybe sure. questions. So one thing that I've first of all, um, you know, I think the most important thing right now that we can get out of this um, out of out of your little introduction to Grace's story is that um, family is so important when family or friends um, are so important when somebody goes in the hospital because the hospital doesn't always have the best interest of the patient in mind. Um, I know that sounds pretty powerful to say that, but I honestly believe that. You talked about government agendas. Hopefully we can get into that a little bit later. Um, most hospitals are reimbursed. Over 50% of their money comes from government sources. So they follow the government rules. Um, and if the government pays extra for certain procedures, they will go down that road of those procedures, i.e. a ventilator. Second, all, second of all, I like the idea when they tried to kick you out of the hospital and say that you can't be here with your daughter. Um, you said, uh, no, that's not going to work. And so you stood up and you said, uh, I'm going to be here with my daughter. Um, my wife had a similar instance with my son when he broke his leg. And he was an adult. He was 18. And, of course, not the same situation as your grace. But uh, they tried to kick her out of the said they she couldn't be there. And she's like, no, I'm going to be here. Um, so first of all, as families, we have to step up and just say, you know what, this is, this is, um, I'm going to be there. You, you don't make the rules. I'm the customer. I'm the patient. I make the rules. Um, that's, you know, in a lot of ways, I think we can do that. And another thing is too, I love it too. And we talk about this, we talk about it on our podcast all the time. You know, your doctor way, you knew your daughter way better than that doctor did. Right on. And doctors are so in our medical system. And I'm not just blaming doctors, just medical system in general. We are so black and white when it comes to numbers with labs like arterial blood gases. Oh, well, her numbers say that you got to get a vent, got to get on her ventilator. When in reality, you knew your daughter, you knew the whole situation, what was going on. So you obviously were able to at least stop that for a while. I don't know if it sounds like later on she might have to be on a ventilator, but you were your you were your daughter's best advocate. That's why we always, when somebody goes into the hospital, we always need family there as an advocate. And you are, should be in charge. The family's in charge. The patient's in charge. Um, yeah. So I don't know what you, you have to say. Any comment on that, Scott? Yeah, yeah that's right on. Um, I think that's that's paramount. And the um, Grace was never on a ventilator. And if you just think through this story, what makes our story very unique is that we were there almost there was almost no situations in the entire United States where there was advocates in the room during COVID. And so what the typical situation is, is they're getting the government bonuses, number one. Uh, number two, they have immunity from liability. And then number three, which is why our case is unique, is that there's a shroud of secrecy. So they do all of this. You know, they took grace out with us there. So think about how many people are being taken out without an advocate. And I'm going to connect some of those dots with you in, in the story. You know, the ventilator money piece of it. So the hospital gets a $39,000 bonus for putting somebody on a ventilator. You know, so that's that starts the money trail. But there's a lot bigger picture. You add up, now the patient has to get sedated. They get a bonus for that. They're in 
classified as ICU, another bonus. Then they keep the average patient alive once they're on a ventilator for 22 days. So then they have all the insurance payments and patient pay. It ends up being uh, almost 300,000 on average per ventilator patient. So it is to the hospital, that's triple sevens on the slot machine. It's a big deal. Uh, that's so, we've heard that over and over again, and I people need to know that um, they they get it. You know, hospitals get a bonus for testing some just for testing somebody positive for COVID. When somebody tests positive, they get a bonus for it. Why do you think they tested everybody? Why do you think they tested people multiple times? Um, why do you think they were pushing for ventilators? Um, that's one of the reasons why is because they get more money because of it. Hospitals have profited off COVID, period. They've been making money on it. They don't want it to go away. Um, you know, they have they have really, really been profiting off COVID, and the, the scam's got to end. Go ahead, I Scott. agree. Well, I, I did a you know just to to take that just a, a bit further on Grace's website. I have a slide called "The Love of Money." That particular slide got God got me up at three a.m. one Sunday morning. I I banged through that slide before we went to church, and what I figured out this is all available online. I couldn't believe what I could find once I got into it. So the hospital system Grace was part of was Ascension Hospital System. I estimate, and I have the math right on the website, I estimated that they received in the year one of COVID in just bonus payments, government bonus payments, 8.3 billion. I mean, it's, it's hard to grasp. It's just their cash position after the first year of COVID, they had $26 billion in cash. I mean, that's... Pub yeah, public information, right? This is public information. It's all public, yeah. And I posted it on the website. Yeah, this Jeff, is, can, you this find, is, can you find that on, on... It's on Grace's website, Scott? Yep. It's under the Love of Money tab. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to stream that. Yeah, right, it, so if people only knew that. So we had Dr. Mary Bowden on our show Monday, and she's a physician down in um, Houston. And she, her patient was refused um, some treatments of COVID and ended up being in the hospital a lot longer than he had to. Anyway, she's suing the hospital just to get numbers about the COVID stuff. They're trying to hide it. Just how much, how much money are they making off COVID? I mean, I think, I think the public should know. The public should really know. And when you look at what's happened with a lot of these big corporate hospitals um, over, you know, businesses were shut down, restaurants and theaters and, you know, the list of gyms, the list goes on. And yet hospitals were profiting off of this as other businesses were shut down. That's what really infuriates me. Well, I, I agree. I mean, you know, hopefully, you know, when when I'm not infuriated anymore, God had to get me through that yeah. to be able to tell the story. You know, you know, how do you get? You know, we have a doctor and a nurse that worked in tandem to kill Grace. So how do you? You can't forgive that as a human being. God has to do it inside of you because, you know. But I had to get through that in order to share the story so that it it's it's shared from a very objective perspective, and then I'm calling out the things that I'm that I'm speculative on. Uh, so as we, as we jump back in, so yes. now uh, we went through October 7th, Grace's first day, October 8th, the event with the ventilator, then October 9th, this is a very significant event, although minor compared to a ventilator, but it shows how they set things up. So Grace was hungry, 
uh, I ordered some food. I started feeding her. And, I, and, you know, Grace obviously could feed herself, but with the BiPAP, she needed that help. And so I started feeding her. The nurse comes running in and says, you can't do that. I said, well, what's the reason? She said, well, her oxygen saturation is only at 85%. So I, I noodled on that for a little bit. So, you know, I thought, is this right? It can't be right. You know, she was in the high 90s in the emergency room on a regular cannula. And so because I suspected I would get COVID while I was in the room with Grace, I had all my COVID materials with me, including my own oxygen sat meter. So I put it on Grace's finger and it read 95. So I called the nurse back in and asked her if my meter was accurate. And she said, yes, it is. I said, well, then why is my meter reading 95? Why is that more accurate than your meter that's reading 85? And she said, well, because the leads get sweaty. So then I pressed that further and said, well, if that's a known, why don't you change out the leads every X number of hours so that that we can have accurate readings, given that this is the most important statistic that you're using to make decisions on my daughter's health. And she snottily responded, you should just be thankful that you caught this. After the fact, I, I asked for the Medicaid bill uh, that the hospital sent to Medicaid and found out they only changed out those leads three times in seven days. And the billed cost to Medicaid is only $78 a lead. So it's very frustrating. But so how does that fit? Well, again, we were in the room. So now we started getting, we were wise to the oxygen. So now we're monitoring the oxygen myself when I was there and my daughter, Jess, when she was a replacement. And, you know, it, at times it was within five points, but lots of times it was wild discrepancies. And Grace's last day, there was a 40-point discrepancy. So what, why, would the, why would the hospital purposely lower the oxygen statistic? And I believe the case is because if families are wondering, you know, so they, you know, their loved one dies, they said, well, he needed a ventilator, Uncle Jim needed a ventilator, whatever. So now they, most people aren't even requesting the records, but if they do request the records, the narrative will show that the person needed a ventilator because look, look, his oxygen was only at 80%. And well, if they're lying on the statistic, how does that, yeah. But again, it, it points to, to the money trail versus the patient health. And just so that people are aware of, of this, I mean, they're not all in on it. The hospital that I went to three days after Grace died was fantastic. They saved my life. But when you look at blow by blow what that hospital did compared to the hospital that Grace was in, it was literally completely opposite. The only thing that was the same was oxygen and the steroid. Everything else was different. I mean, they, they gave me vitamins and a probiotic, uh, vitamin D. I mean, you can't, hospitals don't do that, but this hospital that saved me did, you know, they cared that I made it. And, you know, with Grace, they cared that she was, she was a statistic. So now the next day was Sunday, the 10th of October. I uh, was uh, not woken up because I was pretty much up all night, but at seven o'clock in the morning, the head nurse came in with an armed guard and said, you need to leave immediately. And I said, well, what is that based on? And she said, you've been turning off the alarms at night. Well, and the answer I gave her is, yes, I have been. And I had the nurses train me how to do it because they're going off 20, 30 times a night. And oftentimes it's 20, 25 minutes before they come in. So they showed me how to shut off the non-essential alarms. 
then she said the last three shifts of nurses don't want you in the room. So, I mean, obviously, you know, now why they didn't want me in the room because I was challenging. Yeah. And then third, which is the, the stupidest thing, and it's their, their official response when they wrote us a letter um, responding to our request to meet. They said, she said, well, we suspect you have COVID. Well, no kidding, I have COVID. You guys told me I was going to get COVID. That's why I have all my COVID materials. Uh, and if it was such a big deal, why weren't you testing me? Um, so I, it just, it's frustrating. So the armed guard walked me out then all the way to my pickup truck. And he said to me, you know, he witnessed this back and forth with me and the head nurse for an hour. And then he just, he said, Scott, you got to take this to a higher level. And he saw through what was going on and realized, you know, this is no good. Well, then we had 44 hours without an advocate because we had, I had to hire Grace's special needs attorney to negotiate with the hospital attorney to get an advocate back in. My wife wow. couldn't be the advocate because she had COVID. So why are we negotiating something that Grace has an advocacy right to under the Americans with Disabilities Act? You know, it's it's because in these situations, they operate outside the rule box. So especially in today's economy, the liberals, op, you know, they, they just do things and then... <laughs> You sue them, and you're right, but you don't win the lawsuit till two years later. Well, the the deed is already done by that time. Uh, so anyway, thank thank God Jessica got in there. Uh, so now we'll move to October 12th, which is the day before Grace died. Grace had a great day with her with Jess. The two sisters had a good time. Um, before Grace went to bed that night, she sat up in the bed. She had her BiPAP mask on, and Jess called her two boys, Grace's nephews, on FaceTime. And Grace sat up in the bed and said, hi, boys. And just regular Grace. Just reported her oxygen was at 98, 99% all night long. Uh, Grace had such a good day. The, that day, the doctor called Cindy and I at 8 o'clock on the 13th, Grace's last day, um, and said, Grace had such a good day. I think we should put a feeding tube in. He was calling to get us to for our, the the decision on the pre-approval for a ventilator. We said no again. And then he went into the idea of a feeding tube, which you already understand why she would need a feeding tube, but she never really needed one. She needed it because they wouldn't let us feed her. And the nurses didn't do their job in feeding her. Grace should have been fed the whole time. So now she's malnutritioned. And, and yeah, when I go through this sequence of events next, it, it gets to be really, this is tough, tough stuff, Sean. This is let under, me call, I, I got a comment on this guy. Yeah, okay? sure. Um, first of all, again, you being there as an advocate was so important and, and I can't stress that enough. Here's what I find amazing. You know, when you're, when they, when there was a discrepancy in auction levels, your machine said your um, O2 sat machine said 95, there said 85. Grace is actively asking for food. She's wanting to eat. Right. And you Correct. basically said that she was her typical grace. Correct. So here they are wanting to say how, and I'm not saying she wasn't sick. Don't get me wrong there, but they want to put on her ventilator. My, my guess is, and I mean, you're her father. If she was that sick and her O2 levels were going down that fast and she was that sick, she wouldn't be requesting food. She would be, she would not want to eat. That's my rational thinking. So why do they want to believe these numbers all the time? And are they fudging the numbers? I've heard many of hospitals say 
you know, they don't really treat COVID patients. They just put them on ventilators, right? At least early on for sure. Most right. hospitals, they would just send people home. Oh, when your O2 sets get behind 85, get under 85 and come back. And I'm sure they're told by the government, this is the number we can use to get payment for COVID. So that's why they use a black and white number of, you know, 85% or whatever the number is. So um, I, I just think it's, it's interesting how, you know, if you don't have an advocate there, you just got to wonder what is happening to these people. Well, we, we know, and a lot of them were elderly people and they didn't have anybody there. They locked people out of the room and they would just do whatever they could to them um, in the name of money. Wow. I've seen it. I mean, we have a spot on Grace's website for people to share their stories and, and they're writing in and we get lots of them. I mean, it, it, I read them all. I respond to them all. And I, it's like, Oh my gosh, some of these are worse than Grace's and Grace's is horrific. Yeah. So uh, let's get yeah. back together. Grace was Grace sure. was doing well. You got kicked out of the room, but your daughter yeah. was there. Your your other daughter was there, and she was doing fairly well. Correct. And I mean, so well that the doctor suggested a feeding tube. So now we get into her last day, and where her last day is documented on timeline is under "Thou shall not kill" on the websites, and it's called Grace's last day. And <clears throat> what I'm going to go through now is that uh, that timeline. So. Great, or Jessica felt that she was going to be in the hospital three, four days, which was logical with, with Grace. And so she said to the nurse, I'm going to take a shower. The nurse insisted that she not take a shower in the room. Remember when I was in the room, this is where this gets really, this is why I want you to pay attention to these details because this is, this is how they do it. So they insisted she go home and take a shower instead of taking a shower in the room. While she was gone, so she she's back inside of an hour. While she was gone, they strapped Grace down to the bed. She came she came back. She overhear, overheard two doctors and a nurse say, the family isn't going to like this. She said, what are they going to like? They said, well, we had to restrain Grace, which means strap her down to the bed. So she said, why? And they said, well, because she wanted to get up and go to the bathroom. So this was very hard for me to go through on the air until one of our attorneys said to me, Scott, you think that you would have been restrained for wanting to go and go to the bathroom? I said, no, the nurses would have helped me with, you know, it, it's easier to restrain somebody, right? But I mean, if I want to go to the bathroom and have the nurses help me go, you know, they got to just move the IV machine with me and that's what they should have done with Grace. But, you know, so then I realized at that point, they did this because they could. Nobody was there and she yeah. had Down syndrome. She, she wasn't going to fight them. Right. And so that Sunday after the attorney said it, I went through the doctor's records one more time and I went through every single record and just looked for Down syndrome. And what I found is that in, there was 22 doctor's records during the seven days Grace was in the hospital. They referenced the fact that Grace had Down syndrome 36 different times. So you connect the dots. Again, it's speculative as to why, but I have more evidence as we get going. So now they use that restraining her as an excuse to ratchet up a sedation drug called Presidex. So what I what we learned after the fact is that Grace was on Presidex for four days prior to her last day. Presidex is a sedation drug that's used for anesthesia for surgery. Any nurse that's used to it says it's three hours max. The package insert, which is the rules they're supposed to follow, says 24 hours max. 
So after we had a malpractice nurse now review Grace's records and her conclusion was is that they chemically restrained her. So I talked about physical restraining, but they chemically restrained her with Presidex. Now Grace was doing, I mean, surprisingly, even with that sedation, she was doing fine the second to that or the day before she died. So now they they ratchet up the Presidex further. They don't wait for Grace's oxygen to rebound and her stats to level up. Jessica even challenged them. They instantly went right to the feeding tube. So now they took the Presidex to max dose. At that point, Jessica said Grace was out of it the rest of the day. So now Grace is out of it by what they did. And they still gave her lorazepam, which is an anxiety drug. And then when we get into the 30 minutes that killed her, at five, at, so now she's on max dose of Presidex. At 5.46, they give her another dose of lorazepam. 5.49, three minutes later, another dose. And then at 6.15, morphine as an IV push, which means instantly, not a drip. The morphine package insert is also on Grace's website. It's the most damning document out there. If you read it, you'll think, how could they do this? These are the rules they're supposed to follow. It says to not combine those drugs because it causes death. And if you do use morphine, just on its own, you're supposed to have the reversal drug bedside and monitor the patient. They did neither, which you're going to hear when I tell this detail. So now this is 6.15. Jessica realizes within 20, 30 minutes, Grace is getting cold. So she tries to get a nurse in to take a temperature, asks, is this normal? The nurse just gives her a blanket and says it's normal. Well, that's not normal. This was a 14-year nurse who delivered these lethal doses. She can't use the doctor as her excuse. She knew better. Gives her a blanket instead of taking care of her. Then Jessica called Cindy and I via a FaceTime call at 720 panicking. She said, Dad, Grace's numbers are dropping like crazy. I said, get the nurses in. She said, I've been trying. They won't come in. She estimated 30 nurses outside the room at that point because of shift change. So then my wife and I start hollering, save our daughter. They holler back to us. She's DNR. Do not resuscitate. We holler, she's not DNR. Save our daughter. Jessica ran out in the hall to find out what's going on. A nurse read off the computer the doctor ordered the DNR and there's nothing we can do about it. So we we literally watched Grace die seven minutes after Jess called at 727. We watched her die on FaceTime. We can't believe it. And wow. it gets it it actually gets worse than this, Sean. How so now you think so the, how could the, it get worse? Well, yeah. So I drive Cindy to the hospital. I had COVID at this point. Uh, Cindy and Jess take care of cleaning up Grace. Our pastor met us there. Um, the funeral director meets us there. And while we're, we're uh, I'm going to go into what the nurse said to Cindy, but after the fact, because it fits better into the story, but after we're now kind of shell-shocked, what happened? Jess tells us there was an armed guard posted outside the room. And I say posted with 100% certainty. And I'll tell you why. So I don't know why he was posted there. I, my suspicion is to prevent any nurse with a conscience from coming in and saving Grace. But I know it's not an anomaly because after Grace died, Jessica crawled in bed with her to hold her for about 20 minutes. And she said that armed guard stood outside the nurse's window and watched her the whole time. So, I mean, he was assigned to that room. And it's, it's sick. So how we got clued into all of this 
uh, you know, I don't, we were probably done an investigation anyway, but we knew there was some shenanigans going on because when the pastor uh, wheeled Cindy out of the hospital in the wheelchair, and one of the nurses had Grace's belongings on a cart and she leaned down to Cindy and said to her, me and several of the other nurses don't think Grace should have died today. So then, you know, after that, we got all the records, at least what I thought were all the records. Interestingly, when you think you get all the records, I learned this from the malpractice nurse. So she reviewed what I had reviewed. And then she told me, Scott, there's at least a thousand pages missing. So then she wrote up a records request. So I, I did that and she was spot on. There was another 966 pages that they didn't give me. Um, and she said, there's even more. She said, it, you'll get all of them once you get an attorney involved. Uh, it's it's hard to grasp. I mean, so when you look at the research that I put together, again, it's all on the website, you'll, you'll make your own decision. And, you know, so everything I've said so far, I've told you what's speculation, but, you know, I want to go into the why, because that's really where um, it's, it's speculation, but I spent enough time on the why to believe that what I'm telling is, is true. So Sean, do you have any other questions right now? Well, I, I do about, so is it even legal for a doctor to order a DNR? Outstanding question. I'm going to pull that pull that out so I, I can tell you exactly. I mean, I got to be honest with you, Scott. I, I've worked at a hospital before early in my pharmacy career. And it's um, this story is almost unbelievable to me um, that, that a doctor well, would order a DNR and, or could even do it legally. I'm glad you I'm glad you say that because that's that's why I posted the research because there is a believability factor to hearing this when you you just hear me talking thinking right no that guy's that guy's a whack job you know there's no way I can believe this but look at what I put on the website so it is illegal but remember what I said earlier is that if you've bought into an agenda they don't think the rule box applies to them. So in Wisconsin it's state statute 154 and I'm just gonna this is posted on the website. So in order for a DNR to be valid, the healthcare agent must request the DNR order. So my wife was the healthcare agent. Then the healthcare agent must consent to the order, which we never consent to the order. Then it must be in writing and signed by the healthcare agent or the patient. So, I mean, the doctor can't do that unilaterally. That's against the law. The second thing, which is minor, is that once somebody's a DNR patient, they're supposed to put a DNR bracelet on which of course, who cares about a bracelet when you're in the hospital? But the most important thing is let's just say for just some wild reason, we agreed to a DNR just for argument's sake. I'm just going to read this right out of state statute. It says a guardian or healthcare agent may revoke a do not resuscitate order by giving direction to resuscitate the patient. So by my wife and I saying to the nurses, she's not DNR, save our daughter. That instantly revoked the DNR. So, I mean, so they remember what's going on here. You you said you want to talk about the legal piece off, off camera, and they have, they're above the law. They have immunity from the law through the CARES Act. So they're doing this stuff. Um, and they really had immunity from the law even before the CARES Act, which I'll, I'll explain. But um, what I have come to believe is that the, the hospitals are doing the government bidding. In fact, I'm going to go as far as saying that the hospitals are an arm of the government, and I can prove it. I, when, I agree with you 100%. Because, and here's here's the thing, Scott, follow the money. Hospitals correct. get paid by the government. They are an arm of the government. 
And if if their major funding source is government dollars, they're an arm of the government. Period. Well, I'm and I'm going to give you more evidence than that. So I mean, that's just that's the you know the um, intuitive evidence that you you know you'd obviously come to that conclusion, but. On December 8th, you know, December 2nd, when the hospital refused to meet with us, so they sent us an email saying, we're not going to meet with you. I sent, I mean, you get a sense for how much research I've done. I mean, I gave it all to them, wanting to have a meeting, and they refused to meet. So that that day, December 2nd, I filed complaints with the, the state licensing board for physicians, the licensing board for hospitals. And then a few days later, I filed a complaint with the Department of Justice, which is on the federal level under the Americans with Disabilities Act violations, which there were many. The Department of Justice wrote back and said they don't have time. The, the hospital agency investigated the hospital. The doctor licensing agency investigated. So I'm just going to read directly from the letter we received so I sent this complaint in December 2nd. On January 20th, they wrote back to us. This is from the Wisconsin Department of Safety and Professional Services. This is the licensing arm for physicians. So I'm just going to read a paragraph out of that, that uh, letter. It says, the details of the complaint were reviewed and evaluated by a screening panel made up of members of the regulatory agency for the profession and or a department attorney. So this is your first clue. They only use members inside their own department to do the investigation. If you know, you get a sense for my research. I mean, this stuff is horrendous. But yeah. they chose to not have any outsiders involved with the panel to investigate. Based on the review and evaluation of the complaints and other materials, a decision has been made that the information presented does not warrant further inv- investigation. Can you imagine presenting them with? A doctor ordered DNR against the law, but that doesn't require further investigation. So this is why I'm saying so now you got the government investigating the government, which is the hospital. Yeah. Uh, and this is this is insane stuff. All of this is on the website. Now so I, I, I gotta ask Scott. So I mean, because I, I think a lot of our listeners and viewers are gonna be in the same place that I am, that it's it's just it, it it's it's unbelievable in a lot of ways because we want to think that hospitals have our best interests in mind and they're there to protect us and they care about us as a, as a, as a patient. Um, but I think over the last two years, I've been questioning it for a long time. Um, I think over the last two years, it, we've just verified it's, it's been confirmed that hospitals are just one of the places that we should stay away from. And if it's any kind of elective procedure, don't go to a hospital for sure. Um, and I know there's a lot of people now that they'll tell, they'll tell their, you know, primary care doctor, Oh no, don't send me to the hospital. I won't go. You do everything you can to treat me at home. I will not go to a hospital. That's how much credibility they've lost now. So I've got to ask Scott, what would their motive be in 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 doing a DNR on on Grace and basically letting her die? What would the motive be? I be, so I think it's way deeper than financial. So of course financial is is um, behind this because they're making an obscene amount of money. Um, in Grace's specific situation, I'll drill that down. But then I want to get to what I believe is the real motive. So in Grace's situation, remember we would not let her. Um, have a pre-approval for a ventilator. Right. So when they heard that from us for the fifth time, 
on October 13th that morning, I think they figured out another way. And on that love of money slide, you'll see the statistics for Grace specifically. So that day when Grace died, the hospital was at 100% capacity. Um, it was reported in the local news that day that every emergency room, there, the patients were stacked up like cordwood. If you go back to when Grace and I were in the emergency room seven days earlier, we waited 10 hours. So translate that. What did that mean? Again, speculation. I've translated to mean we had to wait for somebody else to be killed. So now Grace's, the hospital bill that was sent to Medicaid was only $11,800 for seven days. Why so low? Because we weren't approving all this junk that they want to sell you. So that's only $1,680 a day. They got $13,000 for taking Grace out. That's their bonus. Uh, that's the death bonus they get. So wait, 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 wait. Yeah, I know. Hospitals get a death bonus. Yes, thirteen thousand okay. for COVID death. Hospitals get an extra bonus when a patient dies and they're positive COVID. Well, they have to put it on the death certificate that way. I mean, that's uh, that's a rabbit trail. But I've I've said this in public many times. I'll say it right here. We don't want any money out of this. If we if we win a lawsuit. You know, it's not the money. I want I want one thing out of this, which is I want the death certificate changed to the truth. She did not die of COVID. And right. that's this is so big. This story is so big because that's why there's a bigger agenda where I think the real motive, Dr. Elizabeth Valit has uncovered what I believe is the real motive, and that is to take out the useless eaters. So she founded Truth for Health. She works with Dr. Peter McCullough and she has drilled down attenuated care, which means rationed care. So they're rationing care to the elderly and the disabled. No one's going to say this in public, but they already call them useless eaters. You know, Hillary Clinton called them, you know, a lot of people, the deplorables. Well, so now who's all going to get lumped in the deplorables? I mean, they're already setting it up for, for this rationed care through all the news media. So now who do you think knows what insurance a patient has inside of five seconds when they check into the hospital. Yeah, you guessed it, the hospital. Yep. So Grace was on Medicaid. All disabled people are on Medicaid. All elderly people are on Medicare. Yep. Okay, yep. so now they know who to take out without going public with this. And there's another financial incentive to take them out. 2.2 trillion of our federal budget goes to people on Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. That's 39% of the budget. Every person that is on Medicaid or Medicare is also on Social Security. That's those people who are on both are cost the cost the taxpayers 32,000 a year. Well, that that's that's part of what we're responsible for. So if you look at the COVID payment of a hundred grand on average bonus to a hospital, and by the hospital taking out somebody on Medicaid and Medicare who is also on Social Security, that saves the government thirty-two thousand. So it's a three-year payback period. They advance a hundred grand. They have a three-year payback period for the hundred grand. But it's it's all under this umbrella of uh, the sustainability agenda that these these elites are selling us. Which the sustainability agenda is is two things. Number one, everybody knows they're trying to push climate control. And the other thing is under the the guise of health. So, you know, we gotta we gotta create, you know, national health. And it sounds all good when they say it, but what they're really trying to do is 
they think the, the population has to be pared down in order for the world to survive. This is crazy stuff. Don't they realize God's in charge? Um, well, for one. That's what's going on. Yeah. And for one, anytime we give our health care to the government, Medicare, Medicaid, any of those programs, um, there has to be rationing because you, you just stated the numbers. I can't repeat them just because I don't remember them, but it's unsustainable and the government probably knows it. So they do have to ration care and that's exactly what happened or get rid of people. Um, I actually wrote a book on this subject, being a guest of our show, Scott, you'll get a copy of the book. Um, Thank you. It's called sickened how the government ruined healthcare and how to fix it. And, and one of the ways is, is we have to stop the government from controlling healthcare period. And we as individuals have to take charge of our own health. And um, one of my goals is to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their own health and advocate for their families. That's the only way we're going to fix this problem. The government is not going to fix it. And I have to put a plug in for Elizabeth Felit. She's been on our on our podcast twice, and she's oh, a great. wonderful woman and a very smart doctor. And so, I you're uh, you're in good company when when you mention her name. Well, that's uh, I mean, she does a great job drilling that down. Uh, this these statistics that I said about the the Medicare and Medicaid are also I, I did a genocide slide on Grace's website, so. I mean, because that's really what's happening. I mean, genocide is happening in the United States. I mean, you know, we 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 act like we're you know we're pointing fingers at all the other countries in the world, but here we're doing it. Just process this. The United States. There's 200 countries reporting COVID deaths. The United States is in the top 20. How can that possibly be? That doesn't make any sense that we're in the top 20. But we're in the top 20 for for a reason. I mean, they had to they had to have these numbers be high in order to create this fear uh, to control the population. I mean, I I never thought I would see a population that is this dumb. So do you think, I mean, Grace's Down syndrome was mentioned 36 times in her medical record that you know of. Um, Do you think this contributed to her death? It's speculation, but I do, but I'll, I'll add a couple more things. So it isn't, it isn't just the, the Down syndrome. Um, so that Sunday when I mentioned to you, I went through the records to find out Down syndrome. I decided to go through one more time then. Um, so, I mean, this is all manual process. It's reading every single every single report. And so there was some other ones. And this is where it really gets scary. So you might hear, listen to this and say, well, I'm not disabled, so I'm, I'm okay. I'm not elderly, so that I, I'm okay. Uh, it's way bigger than that, folks. So they also referenced that Grace was not vaccinated six times. In fact, one of the doctors wrote in his report that he said that Grace wouldn't be here if she would would have been vaccinated. Wow. Uh, they referenced that we're Christians three times. They referenced that we're following the frontline doctors. They called it misinformation campaign. We're following the frontline doctors misinformation campaign four times. The head COVID doctor, this guy was so arrogant I mean, he he came into Grace's room, and I happened to be in the bathroom when he's in there. He announced himself. I just said, hey, I'll be out in 30 seconds. I'd like to talk to you. He would not wait. So then he called me on the phone, and he was so arrogant on the phone, and I had to tell him two sentences into it. I said, I know you think you're a god, but I don't. And if you keep talking to me that way, I am going to hang up on you. He wrote in, so Grace, her first day was October 7th. I'm reading right from his report on October 8th. 
He wrote, he, the father, me, believes in the frontline doctor stuff and does not really believe or trust us here in the healthcare setting, which I think is going to be to the detriment of his daughter, to be honest. So just process that. Yeah. What's, right. they, they had a bias. They had a bias in, in how they treated Grace. Um, and, you know, as I told, I referenced earlier, I went into a completely different hospital. And I don't think they treated me different because I'm 58. And I think they treated me different because they weren't part of, of a big system like Ascension that, that is after the money. They still cared about patients. Right. And so that's why I think it was treated different. That's, that's a, you know, from a, a taking care of your family, like you just referenced, one of the things you have responsibility to do in taking care of your family is find out in your locality who has been bought by the government and who hasn't, because, you know, the day that you end up in the hospital, it's too late to figure that out. You got to do some homework ahead of time. Uh, I have a number of research links and resources on Grace's website to start helping, you know, get your advanced directives done ahead of time, all those things. So you're prepared. All those links are on Grace's website because I just thought, you know, I, it took a lot of time in, you know, all these things I uncovered with research. So we decided to post them to make it easier for people. Yeah, well, you're doing a great job of educating others about situations like this so they can protect themselves. So as we wrap up this podcast, um, Scott, um, if, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, what is the best way to do that? Um, there's a, on Grace's website, which is ouramazinggrace.net. There's a con there's a place where you can uh, send a contact form and I, I get every single request. So certainly you can contact that way. Uh, you can write us. Our address is, is on the uh, on the form. If you contribute through the give, send, go, I also get a copy of that. So then uh, I respond to all of those also. So those are the three ways to to contact us. Well, um, thank you for sharing this story. It's a very powerful story and it's a very sad story. Um, I hope, Scott, that Grace didn't die in vain. And if there's anybody that can be saved because of this story, I am sure praying and hoping for that. So thank you for, for sharing and being so open about this story today. Well, thank you, Sean. This was very nice how you asked the questions. And I am, I am uh, humbled and honored to be on each program. And so thank you very much. Thank you. It's been an honor and a privilege. All right. You've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Monday, 1230 to 130. We have Jody Gal back on. She's going to be talking about salt and sugar and the drift method. If you saw her a few weeks ago, she's going to be elaborating on that. So tune in 1230 to 130 Pacific Standard Time on my personal Facebook page and the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy Facebook page and the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy YouTube site. So subscribe to our YouTube site. And tune in, 1230 to 130, Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you for tuning in.